Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this episode, I'm really happy to sit down and chat to James Cruikshank, a guy I've known for a number of years and have worked closely with as part of a performance team. James is a performance physiotherapist, working in private practice with recreational and elite athletes in a wide range of sports. He has over 13 years experience, initially working in the National Health Service as a rotational post-physio, while spending the latter years in seconded musculoskeletal positions. The last seven years, he's worked at Spear, a private sports specialty physiotherapy department, looking after Scars Institute sport athletes as part of a multidisciplinary team. In 2014, James had the opportunity to support Duvalu in the role of lead physiotherapist during the Glasgow Commonwealth Games and support Scars squads in the preparation for both the 2014 Glasgow Games and the 2018 Gold Coast Games. In this episode, James talks about why he pursued a career in physiotherapy, his interest in running related injuries, the most common run-related injuries and how they vary by athlete experience level, the mechanisms behind injury and how they typically present, and his advice on how to manage minor injuries and return to running. Good evening, James, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Very good, James. Very good, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, no, really good. Uh, funny world we live in just now, so I am adapting and uh, just trying to, to keep keep on keeping on, as I, as I say, yeah. Been uh, just different all around. And for those that don't know, I'm a physiotherapist, and we are still able to work just now. So we have been working, and it's uh, been fantastic to be able to keep doing what we're doing. So yeah, we're we're all good, and we're fighting a good fight. Nice mate, nice dude. I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It used to be like take it week by week, and at the moment, it seems like take it day by day, doesn't it? Yeah, I think um, one of the things we're seeing is that we don't really have a set plan in place and we kind of have to adapt quite quite quickly mm-hmm. to change in tiers, change in uh, restrictions and regulations. So as a profession, the, the physiotherapy professions <clears throat> adapted quite quite well. Um, we just need to make sure we are always keeping ourselves safe and our, our clients safe as well. Definitely, definitely. Uh, James, I'm really glad to have you on the show, mate. Obviously had uh, the opportunity to work alongside you for a couple of years at the Institute of Sport across several sporting programs where I was there. Um, you know, really respect you, had some great conversations with you. So I really wanted to get you on, just chat to you around your specialism from physio and the running side of things. Um, for anyone who hasn't come across you, James, and your work, can you just give us a little bit of a brief overview of your career, where you started out and where you're currently at? Yeah, so I um, have a background in sports and exercise science, which I studied at uh, Aberdeen University. Um, I then went on to do a master's in physiotherapy at RGU in Aberdeen. So I've never actually gotten away from Aberdeen yet, but been been trying. Um, I then went and worked in the NHS and my first job was actually um, a secondment out in Inverurie where I worked a year on the wards and I quickly was seconded into um, MSK, which is musculoskeletal injuries, where I worked in outpatients for about five years altogether. Um, in the evenings I worked in um, a few different clinics around about Aberdeen itself, Albine and um, Spear Sports Village, um, working alongside Karen Young, who was at the time the coordinator for the Institute. Um, working alongside her really lit the embers for me, wanting to be involved more in sport and try and put more of my sport and exercise size um, background into the physio side. So she approached me to come and work with, with her full time and uh, Nine years later, I've not looked back. So yeah, it's that's where I managed now. So I've been nine years at Spear, 
Um, and my job now is the coordinator for the Scottish Institute of Sport and also um, do bits of travel when when I can with different teams and like you mentioned there, um, do quite a lot of gate analysis, run analysis and a lot of work um, with local um, recreation and elite runners um, looking for couch to 5k right away through to Olympic time trials and um, Commonwealth Games athletes. So that's where we are just now. Nice, James. And <clears throat> obviously, you say you started out, you, you studied your sports and science degree at Aberdeen before making the move to physio. You know, where did that interest uh, for physiotherapy come from? Is that something you developed in your undergrad or was that something you always had an eye on you were going to move to? I think um, I've always grown up in sport. And I think when you watch the the guys run onto the football pitch, you always think, oh, I, I could really do that job. And uh, I started doing sports and exercise. I didn't have the, the qualifications to get into physio straight away, so I did sports and exercise science. Um, and my third year, I broke my leg playing football. I played in the Highland League, and I broke my leg, um, triple leg break, and, which required extensive physiotherapy itself. And uh, going through the whole process from the patient side, just again, realighted the, the fire that I wanted to do, the, the physiotherapy side of things. And once I finished my fourth year of um, sports and exercise science, it was actually a girl in the year below me at school who was actually finished her physio degree and she was like, you should really do this because it's a really good um, pathway into the career you want to do. So, um, yeah, signed up for the master's, did the two years and as fate would have it for my, one of my placements, she was actually my um, educator, which was, was fantastic and I learned so much from from her. She's actually working down in Perth now. And then from there, um, yeah, went on to qualify with my master's and then straight into a job and there wasn't too many jobs kicking about so I was really lucky that I got a job with the um, placement or the, the place where I had my first placement so yeah it was I was really fortunate to to enjoy that and then get a, a full-time job there. Nice buddy nice dude and obviously um, <clears throat> as you say you've taken up more into running and you've worked with a ton of runners from, you know, your, uh, your amateur guys who are getting into the sport and looking to do their first races all the way up to elite Olympic and Commonwealth, so medalists uh, level. Um, you know, where, where did you start to specialize in running? You know, where did this come about? Were you approached by a couple of clubs or is it something you just naturally uh, drift into of your own sport and background? Yeah, so I um, recreationally, <laughs> very much recreationally run myself. And uh, I've always been interested in in chatting to people when they come in with run injuries um, probably my last marathon I did was 2008 and I was giving out information about marathons maybe about nine years after where I felt maybe my information I'm giving out is not as up to date as what it should be so I set up a, a personal blog um, project 345 where I wanted to run a marathon in uh, three hours 45 and from there my interest in running has just snowballed where I was able to get in contact with local people about which gels to use for my marathon, to which training plan should I use, to um, actually doing this kind of thing and interviewing a lot of local and um, elite runners about their marathon experience and putting it all together in a blog, which helped me and also it's a free resource for lots of runners. And I started getting more and more people through the clinic that had seen the blog and were wanting to, to speak more about uh, running injuries. And from there, I just kept on wanting to get deeper and deeper knowledge so I looked into a lot more reading journals books uh, went on courses and I was fortunate enough in, in 2015 to go out with Karen to 
the Altus program out in um, Arizona. Mm-hmm. So we went out to do the the therapy uh, course at the performance therapy course with uh, Dan Faf and his team. So we spent a week out in Arizona where we were able to uh, work um, literally right next to some of the top leading therapists in working with American and Canadian uh, sprinters. Uh, we literally spent between six and eight hours a day listening and absorbing all this information from from Dan and uh, there's Stuart McMillan out there as well and some fantastic names. And uh, <clears throat> when we came back from there, we literally sat down and said, how are we going to try and make ourselves as good as what they're producing out at, at Altus? And Karen had been working alongside um, the the Pure Speed guys in um, Aberdeen, which is Eddie McKenna's uh, coaching group. So yeah. we already had a high-class athletes there. So with her working there, I was able to, to shadow and experience some more um, high-level learning and take that back into my own practice itself. So, yeah, um, between that, running the marathons, um, speaking to people, going on courses, reading books, I've just developed this knowledge and I've it's more of a thirst now to to always improve, and I don't think I'll ever reach a level where I'm happy of my knowledge of running. I just even tonight before I came on here, I'm I'm analysing my own run from from this afternoon to see how I can be better and how I can help with um, the guys that come through the clinic. And I think that when somebody who runs, you'll appreciate how much running means to them, and they always want to be better than what they were before. And I think that if we can offer a tool that will a keep them um injury free and b um performance enhancement then people are always interested in what you do and i think that although i spend a lot of my time looking at a how to stop them from getting injured a lot of that actually feeds into to b as well the, the performance enhancement side mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i mean what they've got out at uh, altus seems like an incredible program there as well I've seen a few things online. It's one thing I'm looking to probably get into a little bit more for my own CPD stuff. Um, but I can imagine, you know, actually being there in the environment and better with the coach, especially Dan Fath and stuff like that. It's, it just must be an incredible week of learning you must have gone through there. Yeah, it was. I mean, I always remember we're sitting in the, the classroom and what they do at the end of each day is they, they call it a poolside chat where they, they pull all the tables around into a big square so everyone can see everyone. And uh Dan literally sits there and goes, ask many questions. And you're like, oh, what am I going to ask him? So, of course, I'd spend the whole night before asking Karen, what, what question should I ask Karen? Or what, what, should, what, what do you think is a sensible question? I don't want to ask a question if it sounds silly. She goes, just ask what you want to ask. So I'm yeah. preparing my question. And of course, I asked the question. He goes, oh, that's a really, really good, really good question. Uh, I'll get back to you. I was like, oh, yes. So I never actually got to answer my question. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's great because you've got that wealth there and they're just so open to um, communication. So when we came back, he, w- he would email back any questions that you had, you'd answer them. And I mean, it was just a fantastic experience and one that, that really, again, gave me a, a really good um, inspiration to, to carry on with the running side of things. And that was just before uh, Rio. So it was quite nice to see the guys um, that were heading towards towards Rio. So yeah, it was it was really nice, and uh, yeah, uh, still still follow Altus, still follow a lot of the stuff that they do out there. Even we revisit a lot of the stuff that we learnt there. We've still got the books mm-hmm. beside us, and we we came across a a form of of warm up or or like monitoring, which was using the Aldoa stretch, where uh, they look at it's a lot of the it's a quite a cross between the foundation training and 
um, put more fascial fascial chains on on stretch. So it's quite a nice um, approach to see that. And we myself and Karen both never seen it before, and we took that back into our own practice. And again, it's something I would use with some of my my runners now. And it's it's great just picking up little bits and pieces from from pretty much pretty much everywhere and alongside other courses and my bias went a little bit towards the foot quite quickly and, and how much benefits we can make from the foot and a lot of my courses were kind of tailored towards the I mean in, in physiotherapy you either you either look at the hip or you look at the tip and I went for the tip would be in the foot more than anything else and and I think there's a lot of research now coming out the importance of the foot that side of things so yeah it's just a an accumulation and the best way to liken it is a, a snowball at the top of the hill it started off with me trying to get my own self better and it ends up with us going all around the world trying to to gather as much data and as much information and and be critical with the information we're gathering to see how it works in our day-to-day practice nice mate nice that's thing i like about james always adding to your toolbox and just constantly questioning and looking for answers as well i know you mentioned about the foot there as well and that's something i'd like to get into a little bit later on with some of the stuff you've been doing um, obviously, me and you had the chance to chat a little bit off air. And I was saying, obviously, this podcast is mostly aimed at individuals, you know, within the tactical realm, so within the military, within the first responders. So for these guys, you know, they've got a lot of, at the moment, you know, things are changing a little bit of their training, but still a lot of it involves, you know, some you know, long loaded marches, you know, with heavy weight on the back, but also a lot of running as well. So even for the guys who are currently in regiments or units, or for the guys who are prepping for a career within the military or you know police or fire service and that they're going to start doing a, a fair bit of running and we all know that suddenly by increasing volume we see a big increase in injury risk as well with them so just from that you know what what would you say are the common running injuries these guys could typically face when they see that sudden spike yeah um i'll be honest with you when i looked at the the caliber of people you had on in season one of your podcast i felt we better with depth and we're, we're talking about tactical populations but uh, where I probably would specialise is the load management side of things and um, some of my studies has taken me towards and we, we spoke briefly and we were laughing about the the episode I had with, with David Goggins and yeah. uh, and also listened to the Aunt Middleton um, first man in audiobook and regard disregarding content itself what, what came across in both um, their audiobooks is the the amount of load that happens quickly yeah. when you're going through the recruitment process of they were both army and, and ranger side of things, but a lot of load comes quickly. And what we find with uh, the body itself is that the heart and lungs adapt very, very quickly. Next, the muscles adapt, then the, the ligaments and tendons adapt. And lastly is the, the bone. So we tend to find that with sharp increases in, in load, it tends to be more bony type injuries that we, we tend to, to see. Um, again, if we work on the same scale, the heart and lungs takes minutes to to settle back down to a, a resting level. The muscles probably 24, 40 hours, the ligaments, tendons a wee bit longer, but the bone can sometimes take take a few days for it to actually absorb and adapt to, if, if not longer, to the loads that's been put through. And, and with the recruitment processes that a lot of the tactical populations go through, they've got a short space of time to show how much they can do and the endurance of things is really really built up and with a lot of the, the clients that we see through um the the clinic itself the biggest message i would give out is to gradually build their load up to a sustainable level before they start the recruitment process rather than turn up in a day and expect it to 
the body to just absorb it because there's just no way you can absorb that amount of of load in that short period of time without the the recovery required so mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. it's quite interesting and then when you when you have a look at the 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 hell week that they use as one of the the entrances for i think it's the marines correct me if i'm wrong yeah, maybe um, seals have got that one yeah but i think each school's got its own you know arduous week somewhere within it so and it's not so much the load it's the recovery it's yeah. they just need the time to recover from the the last lot before they go into the next one so it's the injuries come back to the question sorry without deviating now the injuries we tend to see tend to be more bone type type mm -hmm. irritations from the, from the load itself but with runners um there's a high correlation of injury with um, reduced experience of running. So the longer you run for, the less injuries you tend to get because the, the body has adapted to that load over a period of time. So we tend to find that the people that go through the couch to 5K don't tend to get too many injuries. But once they complete 5K, they then jump to the 10K with like half the distance or half the amount of time. And that's when they tend to, to break down because it takes them seven weeks to get to the 5k mark, they then try and get to 10k within two weeks or the next week or so. And, and yeah. something's not done as, as gradual. Um, the young athletes and young runners we see tend to be more um, bone injury, more loading because of the experience of running. The older masters runners tend to be more Achilles tendon and hamstring tendons, more degenerative tendons more than anything else. Um, the uh, experienced runner tends to be more hip pain and what you'll find is their hip range tends to shorten because they're only working a certain range so they yeah. tend to find their hip range changes whereas the, the, the new runner or the younger runner has a, a better range but they've got strength through that range itself so yeah it's, it's, it's a variety in, in, in injuries depending on age and experience of running and also distance we tend to find our sprinters because they're more explosive um, tendon muscle injuries because they're not really working the aerobic system and they've got ample recovery for the bone to settle down but it tends to be more that explosion and um, working muscles at length so hamstrings when they're actually at that full length eccentric position tend to be where they're put under a lot more strain in football when it's kicking the ball when the hamstrings at full range when they're decelerating when the hamstrings again at full range it's when that hamstring seems to be working eccentrically. We see a lot of, of issues. Yeah, so that would be probably the, the main lot of injuries we see. Um, shin splints tends to come on if we've got somebody who's running with a, what I call quite a passive cadence where they're not really, um, they've got quite a low cadence. So there's a lot of research out there that shows that a, a cadence of less than 164 tends to make you more, um, more likely to achieve like a bony stress on the, the medial tibial um, aspect of the lower limb where a, a cadence of over 164 more towards 170 pushes the load more onto the forefoot so you're more likely to have like an achilles tendon or a calf pain so okay. going back to previously when we spoke about the the masters runners they tend to have quite a, a short cadence due to hip range and also they tend to be more in the forefoot. So we tend to see a lot of calf and Achilles tendon um, symptoms in our master runners. So yeah, it's it's a lot of things that we do in the clinic are looking at what the presentation is and then trying to manipulate the running stride temporarily mm -hmm. to offload that, to allow it to, to recover, then build up the strength so they can then go back into their same um, stride pattern, but with more strength and a, a bigger envelope of them to, to work into.
Nice, James. And just just for a moment, clarification there. So when you talk about cadence there for the guys, are you talking with regards to the 164? Is that like 164 steps per minute sort of thing they're striking through? Yeah, sorry. So um, cadence is um, how many times your feet contact the ground in a minute. So okay. um, your normal cadence, I mean, the shout of gold standard is 180, but it can vary between 170 to 190, depending on, on what kind of runner you are or what terrain is. So if you do a lot of hill running, your cadence will be a lot higher because it takes shorter steps. If you run downhill, you're, you tend to overstride more, so you tend to have a lower cadence. So we tend to use cadence as a little bit of a marker and just see where about the, the runner is. We tend to find that somebody that's quite passive tends to overstride. So when they flick the leg through, they'll just jam the hamstring at the end of range and they'll extend that leg fully. And then it's a bit like a pole vaulter. They'll jam the foot into the ground and then their body comes up and over the, the leg. Whereas when you've got a shorter stride and a more active stride, you tend to be more like a skimming stone where you're landing underneath the knee, underneath the, the body itself mm-hmm. and able to like propel yourself forward rather than up and over the leg itself. With the same analogy, the, the pole vault, there's a lot of stress goes through a stiff leg when you overstride. So if anyone has got like a bony type injury or a jointy type injury, we try and reduce that and, and take the load off the the bone and joint and put it back onto the muscle once we've built the capacity of the muscle up. Now, I want to go back a little bit, James, just to some of them that you mentioned there, like your your Achilles, your hamstring, um, you know, and your plantar fasciae, so stuff there. So, you know, how are these typically presenting for guys? You know, what would be the, the earliest symptoms these guys would be like, okay, something's not quite right here? Yeah, morning stiffness. Morning stiffness for heel pain, morning stiffness for plantar fasciitis, the first step, first thing in the morning, sharp shooting pain through the foot, um, walk for maybe about 15 minutes and it starts to settle down. Uh, main reason being, um, I believe there's a phenomenon known as creep overnight where the tissue, when it's been stretched out the day mm-hmm. and then you're offloading it at night, it starts to shorten. Then the first thing you do is you stand back up on it in the morning and it just it stretches that tissue and it pulls right on the area where it's been uh, been irritated but also there's a, a huge link now with um, foot strength to plantar fasciitis and also to, to heel pain as well especially the perineals and the, uh, the big toe flexors have been a strong link between them and heel and plantar fascia pain. Um, Achilles tendonitis can present with um, thickening of the Achilles tendon, it can present with um, redness and some swelling there. We tend to look at it as Achilles tendinopathy now um, Tendonitis tends to be inflammation, itis being inflammation, osis being more degeneration. Sorry, So it's kind of looking at more Achilles tendinopathy and, and what the main cause for that is. Uh, we treat them slightly differently. If it's inflamed and angry, we tend to reduce load. If it's not inflamed and angry but sore, then we try to put a wee bit more um, isometric load. We tend to do more eccentric work. We tend to do more. Um, if it's on the insertion of the calcaneus, so if it's attached onto the bone itself, we sometimes do isos over a, a step for a lot longer, where if it's a wee bit higher up, we tend to do more like an Alfredson um, calf raise uh, protocol where you come up on two over on the sore and lower back down on one. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they feel able to, we start to go eccentric and concentric, and then we start to increase the, the load that goes through that as well and start to get A, the repetitions up and also be the weight going through as well. These these structures love load. So Achilles yeah. tendons, hamstring tendons, they love to be loaded, but they're sneaky little buggers. Sometimes they they don't react at the time, but they can react 24 hours afterwards. So you, you do have to have that cool off period to, just to see what you've done with the Achilles tendon, what you've done with the hamstring tendon itself, to see how it reacts to the load that you've put it under. 
Yeah. I know um, reading some of Jill, Jill Cook's stuff around that so stuff, like I think it was like a 72 hour window she does with some of her stuff. So yeah. you know, like yeah. big, big stimulus, less stimulus and then off feet or something like that. So I think as well, we used, used to be quite scared to elicit discomfort. And I think now is that we've probably found that we've been underloading things quite severely as, as physiotherapists, especially we've, We've got people using TheraBand where they can actually use uh, a kettlebell, a weights bar, or you know they can be under some sort of load. And I think that we're like, oh, well, how, how, how bad is that one? Okay, we might have to take it careful. Where now the the guide is coming out saying, let's push three fours, let's let's get a, a stimulation into that, let's get some um, adaptation to it. On the side, we do get it wrong sometimes. Goes a six seven, so you you do have to pull the reins back and. Um, Jill Cook's work's really, really good on describing that kind of let's load to get discomfort but not pain and then give it that time to to adapt to the load itself. If you load it again or stimulate it too quickly after, you, you kind of don't get the best out of the tendon itself. So it's, it's not been in a rush to reload it, but having the right stimulation to get the right adaptation changes. Nice, nice. And that's the same with any structure, bone, muscle, tendon. It's they all just slightly adapt slightly differently. So you can probably load a muscle quicker than you can load the tendon, but the muscles attach to the tendon and, and vice versa. So it's, it's having an idea of the, the whole chain of, of what's all attached to where and, and how you can load them all. Yeah, definitely. Now I just want to work up the, up the chain a little bit there, but yeah. so obviously we've talked a little bit around foot and ankle there. So if some guys who are experiencing say potentially like anterior knee pain or something, you know, from running, What's the biggest mechanisms for this? Is this more so just like that tendon's been aggravated through the anterior of the knee, or you know what else could it be? Um, the knee itself is a hinge joint, yeah. so it doesn't really like to be rotated, or it doesn't really like to have a like a valgus effect on it. Um, if we don't have the control at the hip or at the foot, then the knee tends to internally rotate. So we tend to find that we're going to a valgum uh, position. Valgus business, sorry. And uh, what we tend to find is that a lot of knee pain stems not from the knee itself. It tends to stem either from a hip stability or a foot stability. And that's where I was talking earlier on about some people go for the hip, some people go for the tip. And it's it's making sure that if you do have a bias towards one, you still respect the other. And I think mm-hmm. that the symptoms of the knee are easy to settle down, but the cause of the knee pain is something where you've got to really just do your your clinical reasoning, your problem solving around about what's actually causing this. How are they actually moving? When they walk, what do they do? Do they go narrow when they walk? Do their knees come together when they run? Is there an internal rotation when they run? Is there a drop in the pelvis when they run? Is there a supernation when they run? Or, you know, is there is there supination or pronation when they run? What What's actually happening? And it's very much case dependent. Um, I know Adam Meekins talks about N equals one, and it very much is sometimes. N is one, the person's in front of you. What is actually happening with their movement patterns, with their loading strategies to cause the symptoms at their knee? The knee pain itself, pain tends to be a message that something's not quite right or something's mm-hmm. just not working as it's meant to. It's a bit like a, a car alarm in a car where the car alarm goes off, the seagull taps its feet on your roof or if somebody breaks your window and steals your golf clubs out of your back of your car. So the, the pain alarm goes off regardless. It just doesn't know what's really going on there. So pain is always a signal to say something's not quite right there, but it doesn't give you the answer to what's not quite right. 
And sometimes it's just that you're moving the knee slightly different from what it's used to. And sometimes you get people go, oh, I've got a wee bit of an achy knee. Well, maybe it's just because you're, you're running on a surface you're not used to run on or you're running on new shoes that you're not used to. And these things t- tend to settle down quite quite quickly. But an- anterior knee pain tends to be um, brought on by um, quad length as being a major factor. We tend to find if somebody's anterior dominant or front of the leg dominant, um, the quads tend to be where they get the power and I fully believe that the, the shortest muscles are one of the strongest muscles and once it starts to fatigue it starts to go shorter it'll never go longer it'll always go in a shortened position and that pulls onto its insertion which is just below the knee which when running you've always got a slight knee flexion and that pulls the kneecap into the joint which causes a little bit of irritation because there's four quadriceps the the, the patella can be pulled in different directions and that because it's, it's in a groove can cause a bit of an irritation within the knee itself so the pain can either come from where the tendon attaches onto the tibial shaft or where the patella goes through the, the groove or it can be in the quads from a shortening position as well. So it's, it's kind of looking at, okay, what's the, the, the quality of pain there and what do we think is causing the pain? How do they move? And also what objective markers back up what we're seeing um, from our eye when they move? So it's kind of like having all four corners of the jigsaw puzzle and then mm-hmm. starting to put the edges in and then put the middle bit in and then you come up with a picture at the end. So it's always gathering as much information from that person to work towards a, a hypothesis that's really important. Nice, nice. Now, I was going to ask you, James, for anyone who's listening to this, obviously, if anyone's experiencing, you know, severe pain or anything, you know, for the knee, for the ankle, whatever it is, I'd always say, you know, go see a specialist like yourself and get something treated out. But someone's got some of those early little symptoms there, like you say, the stiffness or just that niggling sort of thing. What what would be your recommendations to that? And I know obviously with any sort of injury, it's multifaceted. There could be many, many things there, but just from a general perspective. Yeah, I think that, I mean, again, going back to the pains being a signal for, for, for change more than anything else or to offload is, is trying to think back on what have I done recently? Like try and be a, bit of a detective yourself to figure out what might have been the training error or what might have been the the thing that, that pushed me over the edge. If you can't think of anything there, there, there tends to be something that's that, that's caused the, the irritation to come on. But certain things like um, mobility of joints are really important. And we often find that the feet kind of get a wee bit neglected in, in their mobility of the feet. Um, knee joints as well, we tend to find that the knee joint itself if it's not going through full range, we need to kind of make sure we've got as good a range as possible at knee and hip and also the, the foot. And also once you get the mobility there, it's being able to control that. Mm-hmm. Um, things that people can do themselves is give themselves like an MLT, listen to their body when they're not sore, and then start to pick up on signs and symptoms of the body tends to whisper before it yells. So it tends to give you little bits of, an incline to say something's not quite right here, you need to do something different. The more and more you ignore that, the more that voice has got to shout loud at you and that's when it starts to develop into to flare up itself. So my key message to, to anybody out there is is listening to your body. Give yourself a wee top to toe MOT. How how am I feeling today? What what restrictions do I feel? What feels stiff? Stiffness is a symptom. It tends to be a, a precursor before you get towards pain. So if something's stiff work on that work on that joint work on the the strength around about that area itself nice james now, i like that analogy of you know the the body whispers before it yells i think that's a really important yeah. one to take forward with that mate now <clears throat> i just want to chat a little bit to you james as well about your own work you've got going on and um, obviously you've mentioned a little bit about the foot and stuff like that so 
I know you've got currently a resource out there for runners called Unlace the Brace, and you've also got Running from Injury. Can we just chat a little bit about this? Like, where do these uh, come about, you know, and what do they entail? Yeah, so um, before um, Unlace the Brace is a 30-day foot strengthening program, which looks at linking the, we talk about the hip to tip, it's it's actually going from tip to hip. So we're actually looking from how do we link the foot back to, to the hip itself and how do we, engage with the ground and recruit the ground to um, allow us to engage strength, engage the, the body with the, the ground itself. So a lot of that comes off the back of a lot of reading around about um, Tom Shod, who's got a website called The Human Locomotion, where he looks a lot at foot strength and um, certainly sarcopenia in the, the elderly population. So one of the, the interesting things he came away with were, was that um, over the age of 30, and we start to lose um, muscle mass at a rate of 0.5 to 1% per year after the age of 13. The majority of that happens in the muscles that we don't tend to use, so the intrinsic muscles of the feet. He went on to then develop that you can actually um, increase your falls risk by having poor strength in the feet. So for every increase of 1% of um, greater toe flexion, you reduce your falls risk by 7%. So a lot of his work was done in the elderly. And when I read his stuff, I'm thinking, well, if we can do that with the elderly, what can we do with like a runner where we can generate force from the ground and we can actually recruit the strength into the ground? And surely that must give us a, a performance enhancement. So I went on to look at, um, there's another book by Jay DeSherry, who um, is a physiotherapist out in America, and he's got the anatomy of the runner and he looks a lot at the, the foot contact. and. We talk a lot about um, the big toe, but it's looking at the tripod, the big toe, the small toe, and the heel, how it engages with the ground. Um, it's like a keystone, the, the way the navicular and the, the, the midfoot works, that actually contacts the ground, and then we're able to propel off of it. We tend to find that if the muscles aren't strong enough, that's when the plantar fascia, it's a bit like a hammock, and it just gets overstretched. So we need to have good foot strength to take the load off the, the plantar fascia itself. Um, I then want to take that into running. How can we actually benefit runners? So there's a few other books called The, the Cool Impossible and uh, uh, the latest one is The Lost Art of Running where we actually look at what does foot strength mean for the runner? And it's one of these massive uh, things that we can actually engage with the ground and, and actually propel ourselves forward and um, make us better runners by having better foot strength. So. Working back from that, we we developed or I developed a thirty day um, plan. Which, when lockdown came around the first time, I wanted to kind of experiment with it. So I wanted to just um, go online with it, and I thought oh, I'll do it myself. And if anyone joins me, then that'll be great. And the first class there was fifteen people. Then the second time I ran it, a week later, um, started the course again. Uh, there was thirty people, and then the third time I ran a week after that. So I was doing three classes at the same time. So. I was definitely working my feet in the, the third <laughs> class was about 35 people joined and I was like, I can't keep doing the class because I'm going back to work soon. I can't do this every day. So I developed a, an online ebook and it's, it's took off all around the world and there's been some fantastic feedback from it. And people who have had plantar fascia uh, pain for several eight years, just automatically losing that pain, just not so much overnight, but with the 30 day plan, they're noticing big changes in the intrinsic uh, strength of their feet and they're they're able to not just runners but people who have had ankle pain heel pain plantar fascial pain just starting to see their symptoms start to resolve with 
building the strength up round about the the bones of the the tarsals and also around about the calcaneus and, and heal mm-hmm. itself so the feedback gave me the the desire to then think well how can we actually incorporate strength training into runners um, for some reason runners and the gym tend to to clash they don't want to get strong they don't want to get big which it's more of a myth than anything else but mm-hmm. if they're on a plan one day a week and they're getting big i want to do that plan because people would buy that plan left right and center if they could do once a week and get get hypertrophy then that would be great but yeah so for some reason it's more of a myth and a belief but i think that it was actually we went along to the session with yourself who was teaching the the strength training for runners and i think my approach was how do i get people not to that level but bridge the gap to that level how do we get them interested in strength training and then get them so interested in it that they then want to go in the gym and do it so it started by doing running from injury which is um it's body weight or a low weight exercises which when you look at the evidence there's minimal evidence actually showing that low weight high reps is actually beneficial for um gaining strength or gaining, gaining performance but what it, it did do with a lot of the guys on the the course was it gave them an awareness of where their imbalances were and it gave them an awareness of that right, I need to work on this. And a lot of the questions coming back, what, what do I need to do to build on this is we need to get a strength training plan going. And then you kind of, you give them the carrot. So then I can pass them to you to, to give them the stick more than anything else. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So yeah. it was more like being a runner myself and I've, I've hardly been in the gym. It's like, well, if I don't do the gym, what, how are other people going to do the gym? And it was developing a, a resource that kind of, links it to running so a lot of the the drills that we do it's an hour an hour long class and the, the ebook itself is a 12-week program so it's basically 12 classes one one hour a week just so they get to know what their body is uh, in the class we do a dynamic warm-up and we then go into what we call a move well set so in the move well set i like to use a metro timer and um, a lot of people will start to either speed up or half rep when they start to fatigue so by using the metro timer it keeps them a bit honest and um, so all the the move well sets are done to metro timer and that can be calf raises it can be fast feet it can be um single leg squat to chair it can be numerous different things and um, we then go on to a quad exercise a hamstring exercise a soleus exercise and um, a glute exercise hamstring exercise um, a core set and then we finish up by doing some some light plyometrics itself and really try and get them aware of what plyometrics are and and how they can take that forward themselves and it's more of an introduction to strength training for runners so then they understand the importance of it they feel better and then they can go into the the, the bigger loaded lifts that, that make a difference and i think that it's it's bridging that gap to where they need to be for example in the gym, it's great for taking from H to Z in physio and hopefully with the running from injury, you can take them from H to um, A to H. So it gets them wet their appetite so that they can then go into the, the stuff that actually makes a difference and it's trying to make it less intimidating for them. Nice, nice, James. I think that's an awesome resource for guys to tap into and really utilize that as well. As a spin-off of that, I know there's um, obviously training the foot. I'm always amazed by people's like either lack of strength or mobility within the foot. And I think I take that for granted myself just from having done martial arts for a number of years, like training a lot, you know, on the mats, barefoot and stuff. I wonder, get your opinion, James, on them, because obviously it's a big push nowadays for um, 
you know, people developing foot strength through minimalist shoes and stuff like that, just because traditional trainers and boots are almost casting the foot, as they would call it. So what, what's your thoughts on this, you know, other than one training the foot, as you're highlighted there? Do you think there's a place for minimalist shoes, you know, that, or do you think it's just a bit more of a, I don't know, a bit more of a fad sort of thing? I think I think the pendulum swings wide. And I think that you've got your, your high-stack performance shoes that, that for example, Nike have got their, their Alpha Fly um, shoe, and these have got their Adi, Adios, Adi Zero Pro shoe with the, the, the really, really high cushion stacks. And, and you can't argue with the, the numbers that these shoes are getting you. And also, you look at the barefoot side of things and you see the, the benefits of having a, a foot in a, a natural position gives you that strength as well. It's maybe horses for courses, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would... I tried to use minimalistic shoes. Um, I made the mistake of doing too much too soon. Wore minimalistic shoes, went to New York, walked the streets of New York for two days with my wife shopping. So, and then, uh, well, yeah. Well, you've got added, uh, added load there as well, mate. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. oh, she can carry her own bags. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, but I think that they do have a place. Um, I think we have to look at the bias of, who's telling you to wear their shoes i don't know um mm-hmm. i i like people in the gym with barefoot and one of the reasons for that is i like to see how they adapt how they move how they actually engage with the ground what their relationship is with the ground and when you're looking at some of the, the information out there for example there was a, a study done just just last year looking at um a 2.4 um i've just got numbers here so 2.4 uh, times more likely to injure your lower limb if you've got reduced intrinsic foot strength. And that was looking at a, a foot core um, paradigm where they looked at the doing a, a, two groups of individuals, one with strength training for the foot and one without. And the one without were 2.4 times more likely to injure themselves rather than the, the group that did the, the foot strength and working in. We build on top of that. So one one evidence on its own is good, but when you start to put multiple studies together, it, it gathers a bit more um, direction. And, and there's a really good uh, physiotherapist out in Australia who's done 20-odd years of working with ballet. And with ballet, they literally are barefoot, pumps, nothing nothing structured and about there. And you'd think that they'd have the strongest feet and they were still getting injured because we weren't working the specific muscles enough. So... The shoes are part of it, but it's also working the muscles within inside that, that that shoe as well. And I actually have the privilege of working with a, a ballet dancer and, and she actually helped and she, she spoke back and forth about the unlaced brace and how it affected her ballet performance. And, and she noticed that although she was always in bare foot, her awareness of the foot and her ability to actually recruit the muscles of the foot were, was a lot higher after after doing the, the programme itself. And when we look at runners, runners can run, but they're quite passive when they throw the foot forward, so they still get injured. Whereas if you start to recruit the muscles more and be more active with your, your running style, you then tend to find that there's less injuries in that way and stuff. So the, the physiotherapist out in Australia is uh, Susan uh, Myers, M-A-Y-E-S, and um, she does a lot of work on calf strength, in particular soleus being more important than the gastrox itself. So doing a lot of bent-legged, uh, work and, and that's kind of what we're seeing in runners as well is that the slace tends to have a bit more bias than gastroc itself so when we get people to do certain tests i.e 
stiff-legged calf raises, they tend to blast out 25, no worries at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we then get them to do the same kind of thing after they've recovered by bent leg and the quality is just poor and there's a lot more pronation, there's a lot more um, adaptations and compensations running about the foot. So it's it's more trying to get that soleus to, to really, really engage with the, the control of the foot itself and actually do its job to stabilise the foot and let the gastrox do its job of propelling you, you forward. So, yeah, her, her work was done a lot around about the, the soleus, gastrox, and the, the intrinsic muscles of the foot. Um, yeah, she actually found with her studies that your foot can actually generate 17% power, more power. If you can actually get the intrinsics working, you can actually generate more power through the foot up to about 17%. So, yeah, there's a lot more data just starting to, to come out with, with foot studies and Along with the same with the minimalistic shoes, it was a wee bit of a quite fatty and a wee bit more alternative at the start. And now, when we start to look at it in more detail, it's starting to gather a wee bit of more cohesion, and, and it's quite a nice place to to kind of go to. Yeah, I think it's all part of a bigger picture, and I think we can't afford to to leave it out. But at the same time, we need to make sure we're still looking at the the whole of the the body itself. Cool. That's awesome, James. Um, really good to get your insight into it as well. Um, obviously, you, you've mentioned a few resources already tonight, James. I know you're a guy who's always actively involved in your own education and your own development. I always ask everyone who comes on, you know, what they're involved in. So just on that, mate, can you give me a book, an app or a website recommendation that you personally found useful for your own education or your own development? Yeah. I mean, books, I could, I could speak all night on, on, on books and that, say because you preempted some of the, the questions. I, I've looked at a few of the books here. So this is one of the biggest ones I, I really enjoyed is Anatomy for Runners. And it's by um, Jay Desherry. And he looks a lot at, at foot strength linking into um, the hip as well. Female athletes, um, absolutely golden resource for you guys is uh, Roar by Dr. Stacey Sims. Um, the main tagline for Stacey Sims is that uh, females are not small men, so don't train them as they are. So yeah. it's looking at the physiological and the, the differences of, of female and how the, the female body adapts to training. And, and I was lucky enough to to sit with about 13 or 14 um, local athletes. Some are high-level footballers, high-level squash, high-level runners. And we all sat in a Zoom call, and I was the only guy in the room. And that, uh, a bit like tonight when I'm talking about tactical uh, populations, I'm like, oh, what about my depth here? And I just literally just spoke about the the female um, adaptations and, and the female menstrual cycle. And it was amazing how many of the athletes didn't actually monitor their their cycle and how they can actually enhance performance by changing their training at different times. And that's, that all comes off the back of some of my reading around about uh, Dr. Stacey Sims. So one of my biggest things to any female um, athlete that comes in now is to, to go away and either watch... Uh, Dr. Stacey Sims' TED Talks or get the book Roar and it's it's an invaluable um, book in my uh, library. It's definitely one that's that's changed my practice around about the female runner. Um, another great one is uh, Lost Art of Running. Um, I just finished it recently and what I'm doing just now is I'm, I'm actually changing the way I run myself to be more active and trying to put metrics around about that's so looking at stride length, looking at ground contact time, higher ground contact time increases risk of injury so lower ground contact time means less injury so i'm looking at what do i what's my ground contact time when i'm running normally what's my ground contact time like when i run with the new form what's my ground contact time like when i run longer where does it drop off where's my fitness level at and where should i be training up to 
so they're all, all really, really good. And from a physio point of view, you've also got uh, Brad Beer, who's got the second best podcast I am aware of after you guys. Oh, thank you very much, man. Uh, you can run pain free, and Brad's um, podcast is the Physical Performance Show. Um, anyone that's interested in sports science, triathlete, um, running, cycling, there's such a wealth of of information there. I think he's up to at least two hundred and seventy odd. But there's been a, one guy that sticks out from that has been a guy called Stephen Seiler. He talks a lot about um, periodization of training. And in his talks, he's known as the godfather of polarization training. And he just has such a wealth of knowledge and he's so easy enough to listen to. And he really inspired me quite a lot to, to change my own training. And it's something I always try and give every client that comes into the department a little nugget to go in and try and better themselves. So if it's a female athlete, it might be the roar. If it's a runner, we might go to Lost Art of Running. If it's a triathlete, we might go to Brad's uh, podcast if it's tactical stuff we're getting to go to to you guys as well so it's, it's all about being able to signpost people so that would be my, my books my recommendations of books my app would be a metro timer um if you've never ran to a metro timer or never done exercise to a metro timer try it out it just changes the 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 exposure time under tension and i think that hamstrings or tendons like to be under long slow loading um, if you're a sprinter, it's maybe it's something that's doing slow and fast, working slow and fast twitch fibre. So it's it's working to um, a timer can work really, really nice. And I quite like having that that metro timer in there. The second app is Coach's Eye. Yep. It's a really, really good thing for just filming people, slowing it down. And you can actually put two videos side by side. So a treadmill, you can get them to run and then get to do a couple of things differently, film them again, put them side by side and show them the, the difference. And I think them seeing themselves running is a powerful tool. And yeah. also, if they can see the changes that you're trying to make, then that's also a, a very, very powerful tool in um, the extrinsic Q world of, of how do we actually improve people's running styles. Uh, what was the other one? There was so uh, app, book, and website. Uh, website, oh, there's, there's, there's a few really, really good ones out there. I think one that I mentioned at the top of the, the podcast, Human Locomotion, um, Thomas Shod, he's got some really, really nice articles. And I just found out the other day that he actually draws his own pictures for his articles. So if you do have a look by his his, um, his page, uh, all the things that he he has on there, he's, he's drawn as well. So that's quite a cool thing. And he actually developed this dynamometer, which is like a, mm -hmm. a machine that gives you a, a reading on strength. And it was actually for the feet. So it's like a, a wee credit card that's attached like a little uh, carabiner onto the dynamometer and you have it underneath the big toe. And my job is to try and pull the credit card out. Your job is to try and stop that with your big toe. And he also, off the top of my head, I don't know what the numbers are, but there's also numbers for what the big toe should be like versus the, the smaller four toes because flexor lucis longus versus digitorum. Um, they're two separate muscles. We often find digitorum is more overactive rather than the flexor. And the strength in the flexor is so important for um, stability, so important for running. And the best example that I've ever heard about how important is the big toe in running is if you've ever had a hammer in your hand and try and hammer a nail in and then try and hammer the nail in taking your thumb off, it's the exact same thing as our feet are like our hands and, and that control comes from that big toe. So if you ever got a chance and you've got a hammer in your hand, for whatever reason, try it with a, a close grip and then try it again with the thumb off and see what your control's like and can you hit the nail as hard and as accurate. And I think the big toe 
although we get a lot of strength from it, we get a lot of accuracy from it as well. And I think that that's a tool that in running world, in strength world, in any kind of world, we look to to involve that as much as we can. Yeah, that would be my my list. But it's definitely not exhaustive. So if anyone's got any questions about anyone, please just ask away. There's there's plenty more where that came from. James, that was awesome, mate. I think uh, yeah, you're definitely the, the the first guest to give me multiple across uh, all three, dude. So I appreciate that a lot, dude. Well, I uh, also got a book club on uh, Facebook, which is free for anyone. So if you look up the Running Book Club on Facebook, join that up, and there's multiple um, books on there all about running. So there's there's um, science ones about marathon plans. There's story ones about a dog that ran the Himalayan mountains and there's there's lots of different ones in there so yeah. there's recommendations and depending on what floats your boat there's a book for you out there that, that can get you hyped up on running and also my latest craze just now is watching YouTube films so in the last three or four nights I've been watching a lot of ultra um, trail marathon uh, YouTube videos and I need to get a life I need to get a life that's what I need to do but from um, the John Muir trail to the Barclay marathons to yeah, there's some great, great um, YouTube videos out there. And I think that watching these things just gives you that lot more insight to what goes on physically, but also what goes on mentally with, with some of these guys. And I think that a lot of my challenges that I undertake myself is physically I can probably hold a conversation quite nicely, but mentally I'm a guy that's probably never been longer than, than 26 miles before. And, and these guys are going 210 miles or so and, and, how can I hold the conversation with that, knowing what goes on inside their head? So I'm slowly starting to expose myself to it. And I think the best way is by watching it on TV rather than going and doing it myself. No, it definitely has its place still, mix. I know I was trying to do it earlier before. It was just like, you know, training is trying to make it as often as possible. So in some ways, doing away with some longer duration stuff and moving more towards the, the short duration stuff. But I think there's still a benefit there of that long duration work there as well. From a physical standpoint, but also just the mental grit sometimes you develop from that of just, you know, it's one thing to work out for half an hour, one hour. But if you're out on the trail, like you say, for several hours, you could be like 10 hours in and you're just like, geez, you know, what's going through your head at that point? My, uh, my way of thinking about it is that when you're doing an ultra, it's a bit like uh, an exam. Um, you'll never know what the questions are going to be, but you can study for it. And sometimes doing a pass paper before you go for the real exam gives you a good insight to what's going to happen on the day. So yeah. that's what I was telling my coach when I overcooked it the other day by going too far. So yeah, sometimes you just got to do the pass papers. Trust me. I like it, man. I like it, buddy. <laughs> I think that you, going back to a wee bit of science, and I think another error a lot of people make is they do their, their long, slow runs too fast. And when we look at the the purpose of running long and slow, it's it's... It's for that mitochondria buildup. It's for that aerobic capacity. It's more for uh, the capillarization to improve. And it has to be that zone one, zone two at max. And Steven Seiler hits it on the head. He goes, zone three is a black hole. Nothing happens in zone three. Zone five, you get anaerobic work. You get lactate zones. But zone three is just nothing happens. And people spend all their time in, in this black hole where they don't get any benefit from it. So be in zone one, go long and slow. And don't be alarmed if somebody calls you out on Strava by saying, oh, yeah, check how slow you're running. They don't understand what you're doing, yeah. whereas you should understand that zone one is where the magic happens. That's where you're building your foundations. And there's no building out there in the world that doesn't have a good foundation. And if you're wanting a quick fix, you're going to fall down flat. And I think that it's to run is, is easy. To understand running is a wee bit more complicated. And it's understanding that the foundations are built 
by doing long, slow runs. And you mentioned that as well, being being in the grit and in, in the pain cave a wee bit. And I think that sometimes you just got to train your mind as much as you train your your body. And I'm doing a lot of work with a guy just now, um, Don Vesey, who's a student at Glasgow Cali, and he's with Spear just now for sports psychology. So he's with us for the full year. And uh, I'm doing sessions with him. And the first thing he asked was, well, what what's what's the issue? What do you want to get out of the sessions? And it was like, I pretty much went, I'm happy enough that I've got a coach for the physical side. I just want a coach for the mental side. He goes, well, you've got to go there and do it yourself. You've got to find out what your your main areas that you're going to find are problematic. And sometimes you don't know what's going to be problematic until you you actually experience it. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was great. And he's given me a lot of tools. And if ever if I can recommend anything, uh, anyone is a sports psychologist is, is a great tool to, and a great person to have in your, your locker as well. And having physical tools is great, but having mental tools and mental ways of, of getting through um, adversities, not just in running, but in, in life as well, is just fantastic to have. And I think that we spend a lot of time working physically, but mentally we have to be robust as well. James? As as ever, mate, it's always an enjoyable uh, opportunity to sit down, chat with you, mate, and just uh, pick things apart a little bit. But for anyone who's been listening to this tonight and just you know wants to find out a little bit more about you or reach out to you, you know, how can they do that? Yeah, um, I try to be active on social media as much as my wife allows me. So uh, I'm on at Physio Run for the Instagram. Um, I'm on James Creechunk Physio Run on Facebook. Um, I've got a website physiorun.net and we've got a, a bookshop as well which is payhip.com slash physiorun so basically you look up physiorun and you'll see me on a treadmill that's that's my uh, my kind of picture that, that people go towards and um, if you've got any questions about running I'm more than happy to, to answer and I love um, people calling me out as well please if anything you've heard tonight you want to challenge, please do challenge me because I'm always looking to learn, I'm always looking to develop further. So it's, I was saying to, to JP before I came on is that it's my interpretation of how I've read books and how I've read journals is what I give out day to day. And if somebody else has an alternative interpretation of the same information, please challenge me because I want to learn and I only learn from sometimes making mistakes and, and every mistake I make, I've always learned from. So please if there has been anything you've enjoyed listening, please let me know. And if there has been anything you think, oh, I don't really think that's right, please ask, please call me out as well. So I'm always learning and I'm always happy to to challenge my bias. Nice, James. Anyway, mate, thank you very much, mate. Take care, buddy. I'll speak to you soon. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me on. It's very, very much uh, a huge honour to come and speak with yourself, JP. I've got a lot of time for yourself and, uh, and the work you're doing uh, with the, the podcast itself. It's a great asset and a great um, resource for us to signpost people to as well. Thank you very much. No worries, bud. Take care. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarchy and Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.